Good morning, church family. Would you please recite with me the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that your Holy Spirit unites us together in one body. Feed us now with your word. Help me get out of the way so that what you once said gets said no more, no less to the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Creed. On the third day he rose again. That's where we're going today in our series over the Apostles' Creed. Do you remember the show CSI? One of the most popular TV shows ever. It spinned off other franchise shows, CSI New York, Cyber, Las Vegas. And remember the tagline, the evidence never lies. You see, the key character was a character named Evidence. A toenail, a hair follicle dripping with DNA. 45 minutes, this show took us from crime to capture. And, and we walked away beyond a reasonable doubt what happened, all because the evidence never lies. Now, do you know that the premise of this show is based on a theory developed in 1920 by a French criminologist, Edmund Lockard? It's called Lockard's Theory. Lockard's Theory was that every contact leaves a trace. Every contact leaves a trace, whether it's a pet hair on your pants or fingerprints on a clean glass or footprints in the mud. Physical evidence is powerful proof. It's impervious to emotions or prejudice. It never forgets. It doesn't take sides. The evidence never lies. I mention all this because the most important event in Christianity, the core of Christianity, the hinge upon which Christianity hangs is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus Christ, after he was crucified, dead, and buried, was raised to life by the power of God on the third day. He came back from the dead, not spiritually, but bodily, physically, never to die again, thus validating his claim to be God's son. And the gospels tell us this, that evidence was left. And that's where CSI comes in, because the evidence never lies. And I want you to see some irrefutable pieces of evidence that would lead a rational thinking person to the conclusion that the resurrection is for real. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves the truth of Christianity, that Jesus is who he claims to be, the undisputed king of the universe. The truth of Christianity rests on the reality of the resurrection. Christianity says that, you know. If there's no resurrection, then let's go home. The Bible's false. Why are we wasting our time? And if, and if Christ has not been raised, Paul says, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. 
then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are also lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied more than all men. Hey, I'm not a pastor because I, I want to be a do-gooder. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, I've got other things to do with my life. But if he did, and he did, that changes everything. It changes how we view life, death, suffering, this sickness throughout our country. The reality of the resurrection proves the truth of Christianity. So let's look at four rock-solid pieces of evidence. The first being this, the evidence of Christ's death. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It's a point worth mentioning. To prove that Christ rose from the dead, we must first conclude that he died. Well, what evidence is there that Jesus actually died? Well, remember last week when we talked about historians outside the Bible from the first and second century, Josephus, Tacitus, both affirm Christ's crucifixion. And each of the gospel writers say that Jesus died. John 19, 18 says simply, they crucified him. Jesus' wrists and feet were impaled by dirty Roman spikes, and it was torture. And we have a word for this in the English for pain. It's called excruciating, excruciare, from the cross. Those Roman executioners would have broken the shin bones of the crucified to accelerate death. And so the victims can't push themselves up. They can't breathe. The soldiers did this to the thieves crucified on the right and left of Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. The scripture says the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found out that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. John 19, 32 and 33. All four gospels and at least two historians outside the Bible record that Christ died on a cross. Now that's important because it's been suggested that Christ didn't really die, but that he swooned, fainted. The soldiers who routinely administered execution prematurely allowed Jesus to be taken from the cross where he was revived and put in a cool, dark tomb where on the third day he was revived and somehow unwrapped like uh, the mummy-like burial cloths. And then, you know, though not having eaten in days, he moved the stone away and single-handedly subdued a detachment of trained-to-kill Roman guards and then pranced about on infected, pierced feet and for long distances, convincing the disciples that he was, in fact, the risen Lord of life. <laughs> a woman wrote a radio pastor named J. Vernon McGee and said, our preacher said that on Easter, Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? And McGee replied, dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes, nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for six hours, run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put him in an airless tomb for three days, and then see what happens. Please don't do that. I believe, I believe. The real question is this, not did Jesus die, but why would Jesus let himself be treated this way? He did not resist arrest. He didn't try to defend himself at his trial. What would possibly move someone to willingly endure this kind of pain and torture? 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, Christ died once for all, the, unrighteous, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus knew 
that in order for us to know God, he would need to become our substitute. And Jesus experienced hell on earth so that we could enjoy heaven with him. That was his mission. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. That's the evidence. The evidence never lies. Well, then there's the evidence of the tomb that, that Jesus was buried in a tomb. The Bible teaches two irrefutable facts about this. First, both friends and enemies of Christ knew where the tomb was. After Christ's crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body over Israel, that Joseph put uh, Jesus in his own tomb. He saw where Christ was put. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body. Mark 15, 43 says. And then it says, Joseph bought some linen cloth and took down the body and wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb out of rock. And then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus was laid. That's Mark 15, 46 and 47. Additionally, the enemies of Christ posted a Roman guard at the tomb because they were afraid the disciples would steal the body and claim a resurrection. So they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. That's Matthew's version. So the location of the tomb was undisputed. The second fact about Jesus' tomb was this. Both friends and enemies of Christ admitted that the tomb was empty. So they knew that Jesus was entombed and then they knew that the tomb was empty. Everybody agreed with this. The question was not, where was the tomb, but why was it empty? Well, some say Jesus' enemies stole the body. Why would they do that? What would be their motive? And if they had done that, all they needed to do was just show up on the day of Pentecost during the Apostle Peter's gospel message in Acts 2. Peter says, God has made this Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And then they could have simply showed the body. It would have destroyed Christianity, but that's not what happened. Some say that the disciples stole the body. In Matthew 28, 11 to 15, Jesus' enemies bribed the guards and told them to say that they had fallen asleep and while asleep, his disciples stole the body. Well, that, that doesn't make sense. I mean, first of all, if they were asleep, how do they know the disciples stole the body? They were asleep. Second, what about their motive? What would motivate the disciples? What would they gain by stealing the body? They would lie about Jesus being resurrected. Why live a life of deprivation and suffering and death because of proclaiming that Jesus was risen if that wasn't true? And thirdly, that's not what the evidence suggests. Technically, the tomb wasn't entirely empty. And what do I mean? Go back to Lockhart's theory. It says, then Simon Peter, who was behind him, that's John, arrived and he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself separate from the linen. That's John 20, 6 and 7. So what did Peter see? He saw the burial cloth lying there in the form of a body, slightly caved and empty like like the empty chrysalis of a caterpillar's cocoon, as if at the resurrection, Jesus materialized through the cloths. And then Jesus took the head cloth and folded it up and neatly placed it separately. Huh? So what do we have? 
a confirmed death, a confirmed tomb, a confirmed empty tomb, except for the burial cloths arranged in such a way to preclude the possibility of theft. The evidence doesn't lie. Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. But let's talk about the most powerful piece of evidence, and that's the evidence of eyewitness accounts. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that over 500 people saw Jesus alive, resurrected. Over the course of 40 days, Jesus appeared to more than 500, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 6 through 8. And then he appeared to James and then the apostles. And then Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. Now, if I were an attorney... I'd want to hear from every one of those witnesses on the stand. And, and I would question them for 15 minutes each without break. And if I, if I could do that, it would take from, from Wednesday morning before Thanksgiving until dinner Sunday night after Thanksgiving to get through the witness list. 128 hours of eyewitness testimony from people who said they saw Jesus alive after his death. Who could possibly walk away unconvinced after that? And if I were a lawyer, I'd be praying that the opposing attorney would say something like this. Well, it's just obvious that they were all hallucinating. Well, then I would put uh, Dr. Gary Collins, a clinical psychologist on the stand, and I'd ask him, is it possible for 500 people to have the same hallucination at the same time? And he would say, impossible. Hallucinations are individual occurrences which can't be seen by a group of people. Hallucinations are not contagious. If I had a hallucination and you were standing next to me, it's not possible for me to induce or infect you with my hallucination. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 7, you'll see that the least likely people were convinced of the resurrection. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says that James saw the risen Lord. Who was James? James, the brother of Christ. James, who wrote the book of James. James, who did not become a believer until the, after the resurrection. For even his own brothers did not believe in him, John 7, 5 says. Well, why didn't they believe in him then? Well, think about it. Would you believe your older brother if he told you that he was God? But then he saw God. He saw Jesus, and that changed everything. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, James 1.1. So what do you have? You've got the death of Christ, the tomb of Christ. You've got witnesses of the resurrected Christ. But then you have the witnesses of changed lives. Paul says, he, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. Paul says he didn't come to Christ the same way the others did. The others came, they were in fear and panic after Christ's death, after Jesus died. They were afraid they'd be killed, not Paul. He was happy with his life. He was content. He was on a fast track to success. He was living a Cherry Hills, Robeson Meadows, Clark Park, Lincolnshire Fields dream. And God took his dream and turned it upside down. His conversion was seismic. The scripture says, all those who heard him were astonished and said, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? That's Acts 9, 21. The last piece of evidence for the resurrection is a changed life. And I'm talking about your changed life, 
your marriage, your work ethic, your integrity. People are not going to be argued into the kingdom of God. They're going to see your love and your passion for Christ. They're going to see your preoccupation with pleasing Jesus, thinking about Jesus, speaking about Jesus, learning about Jesus, living like Jesus, wanting and desiring to become more and more like Jesus. And when they see your response to this current health crisis, that's going to be a powerful testimony. Sometimes we think that Christianity is going to be communicated when we become really intelligent or articulate, but Christianity is communicated, well, frankly, the same way diseases are. It's communicated through touch, through breath, through life, through modeling. And Christian vitality does not come from having a great head. It comes from being connected to a great God who is life. Christ's death, empty tomb, eyewitnesses, changed lives. The reality of the resurrection proves the truth of Christianity. Church family, the evidence never lies. I believe.